Hi everyone, this is Charting Queer Health, a podcast at the intersection of queer culture, healthcare, and research. On behalf of Howard Brown Health in Chicago, as always, I'm your host, Matt Muskie. I identify as a cis, white, gay man. I'm a Chicago resident, but most importantly, I have the incredible opportunity to sit down with various experts across our organization and across our community to learn from their expertise, amplify their stories and voices, and advance the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. Thanks for coming and talking with me today. Would you mind uh, introducing uh, yourself and uh, what you do here at Howard Brown and um, a little bit about your family, I guess? Hi, yes, I'm Katie Mitos. I'm the Director of Development at Howard Brown, and I use they and she pronouns. Uh, my name is Danielle Nolan Ragland. I'm the Internal Communications Representative here at Howard Brown. Um, and a little bit about my family. I have... Um, Two big dogs and a cat, and I know you're not wondering at all about that. I was actually going to um, <laughs> add that if you didn't, because I wanted to make sure that that was included in there. Yes, but. Archie and Pike are very important, as well as Donkey Absolutely. the cat. Um, but the I think we're here. Hmm? Donkey? Donkey, yeah. His name is Donkey because he's a jackass. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Anyway. Um, yeah. He... Um, but I think we're here specifically to talk more about the human members of my family, uh, my wife, Steph, and our son, who is four, Campbell. I am a cis white woman married to a trans white person uh, named Steph, who I have been with for over a decade. Um, we met when I was in college, and I thought they were the most beautiful person in the room. And I manifested our relationship over the next two years. Um, we've been together 10 years now, and we have two children, a five-year-old named Levi and a two-year-old named Tatum. So yeah, I, I brought you in to talk a little bit about... Um, Second period adoption, I know Roe v. Wade was just overturned, and while that is obviously a huge issue in and of itself, there was other problematic language included in um, Chief, Jeff, Chief Justice Roberts' dissent, um, or a, agreement to dissent. We're going to unpack that all uh, with a legal expert forthcoming, but um, uh, that kind of um, calls into question the right to privacy which is a nebulous statement, and I intend to learn more about it, but that also poses a lot of problems um, for people whose families are structured around that right to privacy, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I wanted to get your take on it because your family is one of those that, depending on how things go, there's going to be a lot of logistical problems uh, or you have had to take a lot of logistical steps in order to ensure that your family is not affected. So... I guess maybe the best way of approaching this would be going back to the beginning of deciding to add Campbell into your family, what the process of that was like, or even um, how you and Steph got married. Uh, because, I mean, the, the legality of, of gay marriage hasn't even always been the case. So uh, I guess let's go back to the beginning, if that would be helpful. Yeah, easy. <laughs> it's one of my favorite stories. I love awesome. it. Um, so Steph and I um, have been together since 2012. We consider ourselves a couple on June 28th, 2012, Pride Sunday. How gay is that? I love that. Um, Happy then, anniversary belated. Right, thanks. Um, it gets better. The, the year from then, June 28th, 2013, a couple of days before that, um, the Illinois legalized 
civil unions. We had planned to get civil unioned on our date anyway. So that worked out really well. That was mm -hmm. really lovely. And then we planned to get married two years later and have like a big wedding on June 28th again. And that Friday right before in 2015 is when the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage nationwide. Uh, so it was quite a party. It was yeah. really, really lovely. Um, so then we decided we wanted to have Campbell and wanted to have a Campbell, I should say. Right. And um, we decided to go with a with an anonymous donor. We went through a sperm bank. Um, but the facility that we went through... Um, was lovely and our doctor was lovely and very welcoming and all of that. But um, there were so many hoops we had to jump through. Like we had to meet with their um, office psychologist or psychiatrist, I'm not sure, um, just essentially to get her to sign off on the fact that we could agree to become parents, even though we were paying for it. We paid for everything. Everything was covered. Yeah. Um, so that was, I feel like, we started to realize that there were going to be hoops and hurdles and, but we jumped through all of them and mm -hmm. then we had Campbell and he's lovely. He's amazing. He's just, he's so smart and so sweet and silly and I love him. Um, but one of the best parts about us being married is um, after he was born, we were at, Prentice at Northwestern. They were very accommodating, very um, chill about uh, the two of us and very welcoming. Um, and then the Social Security Administration person comes in to have us sign the birth certificate. And it was a really beautiful moment because for all of the time I could remember, I've heard that, you know, it would be a thing to have Steph's name on the birth certificate. And now being in the state of Illinois and being in this country. Um, my wife is my wife legally on our marriage certificate. So she's the presumed parent of Campbell, which allowed her name to go right on his birth certificate mm -hmm. um, then in the hospital. So that was really, really lovely. So I always wanted children. I believed I would be a good, present, thoughtful parent. And I wanted to have children to, you know, shape and shift and love and learn from. And, um, Steph and I, uh, had the conversation pretty early on in our relationship about six months in when, um, I said to them, I'm, I have a timeline. This is something that's a deal breaker for me. You're either in or you're out. Steph is a processor. And so was like, I need to think about this. And I was like, think about it. But if your answer is not yes, then I'm a no. And I need to know that. And so Steph took a few weeks to think and consider. We were, of course, still dating during that time. And uh, came back to me and was like, yeah, I do think I could, I could see myself having a family. And I particularly think I could see myself having a family with you. And so we, um, about four years later, we had Levi. We started the process of having Levi. We used a known donor to have him, who's a friend of ours. And we tried to be really intentional. We weighed every option of how we could potentially raise a child or have a child before we went through um, the process of IVF. Uh, I was the gestational surrogate, so I carried my children, but I have no biological connection to my children. They're Steph's and then our known donors um, biologically. 
And um, when they were born, they were beautiful, perfect little troll-like lights. They were <laughs> wonderful. So, um, and now we've spent the last five years, you know, one of the things that we do differently as a family than other families we know, uh, one is that we chose a known donor. Um, when we were going through the process of solidifying our relationship with the known donor in this capacity, we it was very, very, very important to him that we were open with our children about how they came to be. And it was very, very, very important to me that we were open with our children about how, how they came to be. And so the our, our biological father and I had to speak with staff about the idea of what it means to have somebody who you know and love also have a biological connection to your children and to have their families also love your children, uh, even if they're not necessarily their grandparents or their, you know, uncles or aunts, whatever. And um, we made the decision ultimately to move forward. And it's been, honestly, I, I can't imagine having a family any other way. I really can't. I think we are able to create our own possibility. And I love that. Um, Afterwards, have you run into any issues when it comes to like, um, you know, parent or designated guardian or, or, you know, anything as Campbell enters school where there's been issues as far as that's concerned? Yeah. I mean, we, I guess simply by virtue of being a queer woman of color, I tend to look at things with a little bit of a longer view lens and kind of get a, I don't want to say a better big picture, but, you know, if you're part of any historically underrepresented underrepresented community or minority, um, you're used to looking for the nuance of things and you're used to looking at the nuance of a situation and the layers and levels um, exemplified in a given situation. So I think we're always looking for ways to be as inclusive as we can. And we always encourage his school to, um, they've done some great activities and they are very, you know, um, happy to celebrate pride. They did have a dad activity, um, which we had to discuss with them that, you know, clearly no man has ever even come to pick Campbell up. He has literally only been picked up or dropped off at school, um, by, women by myself or my wife or our mothers. Um, So I don't know where you thought the dad card was going to go, but I would love to talk about, you know, what kind of diversity, equity, and inclusion training you're providing for your, you know, instructors, because there are ways around excluding parts of your classroom and parts of those children, because Montessori is really all about the whole child, then let's honor the whole child. But really, we've mostly just had those small things where we're talking to friends and ask, hey, can we say, you know, the grownups of these kids versus moms and dads? Because not everyone has a mom and a dad. Not everyone has a mom and a dad in the picture. Um, Little stuff like that. Um, We're always looking for better ways to to encapsulate what I think is a really beautiful bit of humanity because the world wasn't made for us. The world was actually made for families that don't look anything like ours. So the fact that, you know, we, we could look at us having to get married twice. It's like, Oh, we had to get married twice. But like, I look at it as we got to do this twice. I love you so much. We got to do this two times and the system wasn't made for us. So we made a system and, you know, no, we weren't supposed to have, 
a family, but we have one and we have this kid. So I'm absolutely going to do everything I can to make sure he feels supported and safe. And if anything, it makes it even more precious that he knows that he has two moms and that his two moms love him and that we would go to the ends of the earth to make sure he is comfortable, you know, supported and all of that. Especially with the, the, the known donor capacity, um, do your children, how do they refer to him um, or do they? They just refer to him by his name. Okay. And he's just a part of the family. Yeah. His parents are uh, wonderful, awesome, amazing people. And my partner and I are like so lucky that they live in the city of Chicago because they've supported and taking care of our kids and watching them and stepping up when our, our biological families, our own biological families couldn't. And so I think like we've been able to make something really special and beautiful for our children that, you know, it, it really makes it I don't, we're trying to keep it as accessible as possible for our kids so that if they have a question, they never have to feel embarrassed about bringing it to yeah. us. We'll just answer it to the best of our ability. A friend of ours got us a book when we were pregnant with Levi called What Makes a Baby. And What Makes a Baby takes all of the gender out of making a baby. And it just talks about the sperm, the egg, and the uterus. So mm. some people have sperm, some people don't, some people have, you know, yeah. and it talks about how the egg and the sperm come together inside of a uterus and then a baby is born ultimately. And so we've been able to, through resources, because the world we live in today, we've been able to help talk to our kids and inform our kids in a way that's starting the conversation with them before they're going to, you know, before they're even at a place where they can be like, who's my dad? Why don't I have a dad? Because we're not, we're not there yet. Yeah. But I do want to say, I, what, something that, that being a queer family has shown me is that there are way more types of families than we can ever possibly imagine. And the idea that there's a stereotypical mom, dad, children, pet uh is I, like i almost wonder how typical that is mm -hmm. in the comparison of like how many kids are raised by their grandparents or a caregiver or their aunts or their you know um their uncles you know it's there's just i think there's so much variability in in who family is to people these yeah. days and it's and it's and it's flexible you might be being you know physically raised by one person and emotionally raised by another there's Absolutely. people play different roles just and it's not dependent on their, their title. Matt, there's a, I had a question the other day from a donor. We were doing a presentation at a, a corporate partner mm -hmm. in Chicago. And I had a question from someone who was like, what do I do with my child when they see a non-binary person and they misgender them? Or they ask them, what are you? Yeah. And we get that a lot. My partner looks very much in between. And, um, it, what we found and what Steph has done beautifully in those situations, particularly around like questions around who are you, what's your identity, you know, um, is to make it like to lean into the curiosity. Like mm -hmm. kids aren't asking from a place of hate. They're not asking from a place of disgust. They're truly curious. What are you? Yeah. Like you do not, I don't understand you in the concept of the world that I, that's been created for me. Yeah. And so what that means is that when we get to be, when we get to be our whole selves in front of children and talk about how 
beautiful and amazing we are. And so that's that's part of how Steph responds when kids ask. It's like, I'm both. Isn't that amazing? I and the kids are that. like, what? It is amazing. Yeah. But like, we don't have to apologize for who we are. We can celebrate who we are at our most base interactions. And I think kids are the perfect place to do this because they literally are just curious and excited. Yeah. And, and they don't, kids are dumb in, in a lot of ways. That's a bad way of phrasing <laughs> no, it. I used to say kids are, uh, they're kids, smart people, dumb. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're not going to, well, is that really the case when you give them an answer to something about somebody's identity? Like, they'll believe you and they're not, you know, it's not like convincing an adult that, you know, gender is a spectrum and et cetera, et cetera. Like they're, they'll just be like, Oh, cool. And move on. What kind of, uh, experiences did you have, uh, in the process of having your children as far as, uh, I know hospital systems are really set up towards the binary and the quote unquote digital family and, you know, visitation rights and just, it it's a headache all around. Did you encounter any of that in the process? Um, what was that like? Oh yeah. Um, so we worked with, for Levi, we worked with fertility centers of Illinois, worked with Dr. Angeline Beltzos and then Dr. Beltzos moved to Vios. And so we worked with Vios for Tatum to have Tatum. Um, again, Steph is the biological parent. I'm the gestational surrogate. And then our known donor is who he, he is. Uh, but to have a baby with a known donor, you need to have genetic testing to show that you do not have any of the same potential chromosome chromosomal mm. abnormalities, which they do not do for married individuals. Um, so if you're mm. a heterosexual cis man and cis woman, you do not have to undergo genetic testing in the same way. Additionally, at that time, additionally, you, um, um, it, it, and it's kind of eugenics-y, honestly, because if you have the same chromosomal abnormalities, you cannot mix your sperm and egg. Um, and so that was fascinating mm -hmm. to us as we went through the process. We also needed to go through a psychiatric consultation to say we are sane and so is our known donor. And he's also aware that he's doing this for us, um, which was a very simple process for us facilitated by the centers. Um, but was interesting was the psychiatrist, because we asked, we were like, is this really necessary? And she said, it's actually not for queer parents. Like we have to by rule, but the queer parents who I work with typically are more thoughtful and intentional about the ways in which they are planning their families than folks who are using known donors who may not have those same identities. Uh, but we have to go through, you know, paperwork. We had to have lawyers. We had to have uh, our wills drawn up so that saying that um, if something happened to Levi and Tatum, they wouldn't go to the biological father. Uh, he had to sign documents saying that he wouldn't try to refuse be, rights. Yeah. yeah, he had to refuse rights to paternity. And so we had a lot of that. People asked us at the hospital if Steph could be on the birth certificate, which again was funny because I'm not the biological parent of my children. Yeah. So they've had a lot of difficulty on the hospital paperwork around who I am versus who Steph is. Because in some places I'm listed as mother, in other places Steph is listed as mother, in other places I'm listed as other, Steph is listed as father. So we are literally listed as everything on our yeah. medical records for our kids. And when I was going into the 
the hospital to have my, um, to, to, you know, be checked out throughout my pregnancy. And I used the University of Chicago midwives who were delightful. Um, but the paperwork is not. And so the first thing you encounter, especially as a gestational surrogate, is a bunch of questions asking you about how old you are. Well, my, the egg was older, is it was, a a, um, geriatric pregnancy. The egg was 35. I'm not, I wasn't, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and that impact, how does that impact? Because that changes the way they offer care. How does the, you know, the way that they talk to me about my body change when they find out I'm not the biological parent. It's like, you are the most critical person. You are hold every, everything relies on you as the gestational person until that baby is born. And then you are literally nothing in the medical record. You become nothing. There's, and that's just not possible. Yeah. But you know, they don't do research on women and pregnant people. So of course there's no information about how the impact of gestational surrogates on the longevity of children and particularly around like the way that gestational surrogates are treated during the process is it's, it's like a big question mark for people, but I'll tell you what Matt too, after we had our children on the third day of, of Levi's life. So we're brand new parents. We're like scared out of our minds. We've got a little like funny looking thing. That's like very cute, but cries a lot and has jaundice. And we were trying to figure out what we were doing. And I had a terribly traumatic pregnancy. Like I had a long, horrible pregnancy and a really hard birth with Levi. And when, um, he finally came to be, we went into one of our first doctor's appointments and the physician said to us, now, exactly who are you? Like with that tone. And I mean, who else would we have been? Wow. And that was like our first experience of medical care with our children. And from that point forward, we have a wonderful doctor within that practice now um, because there are not many pediatric practices on the South side as well. Uh, the South side of Chicago where we live. Um, we have a wonderful provider now, but who's been actively trying to transform the systems because the systems all say mother, father, other, mother. So, um, if it wasn't for our provider now, but that was, you know, that was our first experience in terms of second parent adoption. We did that very recently. We did that about a year ago, about a year after Tatum was born. Do you think it's, um, the, the adversity or the barriers to, you know, that queer people encounter in, in having a family or having a child makes those, um, relationships that much more I mean obviously it's it's a child so it's going to be you know you're everything regardless but do you think it makes you look at parenting or your family differently knowing what you've gone through to get there absolutely without I I don't even hesitate to say yes um I think any any child is is a blessing or should be viewed as a blessing and you know I don't mean that to sound the way that I think it sounds, but I think <laughs> I you know what, what you saying, mean, right? You know what I mean? I know what right? I mean. But I know that we, there was no, there was no accident. There was no mistake. There was no, well, what if we just, like, right. he was so planned. This child was so wanted and so planned. Um, and the fact that we continue to, have to articulate to folks, okay, no, he doesn't have a dad. He has a sperm donor. He has a donor. We don't celebrate Father's Day. We have like Grandpa's Day and we have other Mother's Day because there is no dad in our house. There is no father here. Um, 
little stuff like that. I think we're expanding not only our understanding of our community, but also our friends and family. They're getting a better understanding of what a family could look like. A family doesn't just look like these two people, a man and a woman, and their 2.5 children and a picket fence. But you can have two women, a four-year-old, two big brown dogs, a crazy cat, and, you know, and and that's that's your family. And that and also the aunts and uncles that he has who love him like their own. Yeah. You know, and they're our friends. They're our chosen family. Neither Steph nor I have siblings. So we really mm. we do rely on our our friend family to make up the social network for us too. Is it ever frustrating to interact with people who straight couples who could, you know, oops, you know, I had one too many margaritas and now we have three kids instead of two. I mean, obviously they still love them, but like it was an oops. And you're like, well, I had to save hundreds of thousands of dollars and had to take a mental health assessment. And um, is it ever hard to uh, hear people speak like that as a queer parent? Um, yes. And yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we love Campbell and we both agree that we couldn't actually imagine our lives now without him. And like, what were we so busy doing before? Um, but ideally we would like to have a couple of children. We wanted to have three, um, the pandemic made it really clear that our societal infrastructure is not solid. It's built on sand. And, you know, by the grace of, you know, the powers that be and a lot of hard work and, you know, our ability to withstand our, you know, our very careers, we, we're still here. Um, there are a lot of people who are this close to not making it and um you know the perfect example of this is friends who have had pandemic babies we're like well what else was i supposed to do but have a kid and it's like a lot right there are a lot of things you could have done a lot of things because there are a lot of people who couldn't um and who don't understand the level of fourth, like ahead of time thinking you have, you have to put in until they're in this situation. So until I have a friend who is going through IVF and understands the doctor's appointments at 6 a.m., you know, on the days when you're ovulating so they can check your blood levels so that then you can come back and maybe try and then maybe that time it doesn't work. So then you have to do it all over again. Um, until one of them goes through that experience, I do find that I have to kind of not, there is a level, I don't want to say dissociate, but I have to kind of remove myself emotionally from some conversations because no, I don't, I don't identify with like going to the bar and getting a little too tipsy with my spouse and then whoops we now have three kids instead of two but like it's okay because we just love them so much it's like no Steph and I went to our local bar and went to the basement and I took out my laptop and we went through sperm donor you know 
profiles and we picked a sperm donor sitting there and sure we cheersed about it but like it wasn't an accident and it wasn't anything yeah. that we could have not planned so i think again like the way we talk about life and children and marriage and humanity is so informed by heteronormativity that more often than not i i have to just remember that nobody else Nobody else in this room is thinking about it the same way as me. And actively then, is it worth me having a conversation about this? Or am I, do I just let this go? Yeah. If it's a friend who's going to continue to say moms and dads, and they're going to say it around Campbell, or they're going to continue to say it around Steph. Okay, we can talk about that. If it's somebody I don't know who I likely will never interact with again, or certainly not on a really warm personal basis, they can say what they want, um, but people in our sphere have to use language that makes us feel as supported and included as we expect to be because, you know, say what you want about me. You could even say what you want about Steph, but we'll both hulk out over <laughs> Campbell and making sure that he feels as included and welcomed as anybody, any other little child in the situation, so... I don't know if it's hard. Sometimes I'm jealous. Like yeah. that, it would be, it would be a lie of me not to say that sometimes I'm jealous. Um, I'm jealous of the ease at which people are able to get pregnant, but I don't think that's unique to queer people. I think that mm. for folks across the spectrum who aim to be birthing parents, the challenges of pregnancy, of believing that you can't have a child or that your family trauma impacts your ability to have a child, your own, like your infertility challenges, uh, miscarriage and loss. I think that so many people have experienced the difficulty of pregnancy that while I'm jealous of people who can have pregnancies easily enough, I also I'm hopeful that those people love and care for their children. Yeah. Like I do for mine. Excellently put. I was um, giving you snaps as you were talking because that is uh, an excellent point that you, you don't have to be queer to be jealous of people that can conceive quickly and easily. Um, that's uh, something that everyone is able to feel. What runs through your mind when you hear about the Supreme Court kind of doing away with precedent and uh, what, yeah, what comes to your mind or, or what uh, steps do you think that you might have to take? Yeah. Um, well, first I'll say what comes to my mind is I see myself standing at like an intersection, but one of those um, six corner intersections mm. where... There's one offshoot that's me as a black person. There's one offshoot that's me as a woman. There's one offshoot that's me as a queer person. And I'm, and I'm at the center of all of those things. And then off to the other side, there's me as a mother. There's me as a wife. And there's me as like just a human being. And what I imagine or what comes to my mind is me trying to go in all six directions at once without having like the cartoon split mm -hmm. in between. Cause that's really, it's really what it, it's what it feels like. And it's interesting because my wife is not um, a woman of color. She's white woman. And she 
even she understands that there's some nuance here that I'm feeling and there's a lot of, there's a layer to it that she just isn't quite going to um, internalize the same way. Um, so there's that. And yeah. I think as far as the next steps, number one, um, it's articulating the feeling and being okay with like, with the idea that, <clears throat> you know, number one, yes, this is the, Making abortion illegal nationwide or, you know, changing that legality will is, is terrible on its own, in my personal opinion. Um, but the way that Justice Thomas speaks about the right to privacy and the way some, I forgive me, I don't remember uh, the congressperson's name, but it was a congressman, I believe from one of the Southern states, maybe one of the Republican ones out West who was saying that um, we need to look at Brown versus Board of Education and Plessy versus Ferguson. Oh yeah. You know, if we're really like, it feels like everyone that was very upset in 2016 should get a told you so dance, but like nobody wants to dance about this because we said that the slope was slippery and now we're all just sliding downhill and the bottom doesn't look great. And, you know, I don't know how many of us brought snowshoes and ice picks. You know what I mean? I, I just, I don't know. Um, so my ice pick is a lawyer and my snowshoe is the money to pay that lawyer, you know, and that also is exemplary of privilege. We had to pay a lot to have Campbell. We didn't get to just make him on our own. We had to pay for the doctors. We had to pay for the, all of that. Um, we had to pay for the donation that made him. So the idea that we are now going to spend more money to make sure that we can keep him no matter what, and that no one could ever tell us that we are not his parents when I know that he's ours because I carried him myself and my wife was there when he was cut out of my body, I, I, it's, it's maddening and it's, it's offensive and it feels like a direct disrespect to the last four years and some change, five years now, because I was pregnant in 2017, um, of working so hard and having such faith in my family that, you know, without the ability to pay for an attorney to give us the legal rights, because a birth certificate is an administrative order. It's not a legal, it's administrative paperwork. It's not a legal order. So if something happens to me and I was the carrying parent, my wife's rights to him could be challenged. You know, we have family that live in other states. And if we go to another state and God forbid something happens, sorry, I knocked on wood there. Um, you know, and I'm no longer able to effectively speak for him or advocate for him. They might not give her the same ability to do so without the right paperwork in hand. So not only do we travel with birth certificate and not only do we travel with passports that have all three of our names on it and not only we are now also going to travel with paperwork that says no matter what this is his mom and I am his mom and period that's it mm -hmm. um so yeah that's that's the next steps and yeah it feels very it it I'm grateful that we can do it 
but I'm very concerned that we have to and that we're getting, it will become a thing that we need to have done. Yeah. Where now it feels like we're planning ahead, but it just, it doesn't feel like a plan for a what if thing. It feels like this is going to happen inevitably and we yeah. just have to be able to still be the three of us at the end of it. Hmm. Yeah, so last year in, um, uh, no, two years ago, so in like November 2020, uh, Steph and I decided we needed to move forward with second parent adoption. We'd been talking about it. We'd been putting it off because money. And we were like, we can't put this off any longer. We have to move forward. Our family is at risk. We don't know that we'll always live in Chicago. And we also travel, you know, to nearby states. And my family uh, lives in Missouri and so something could happen if we went to Missouri and we wanted to make sure that we were safe and that our children would be safe and that we would both be able to make medical decisions for our children mm -hmm. in the moment without having to be questioned about our ability to do so. Um, and even if you have a birth certificate with your name on, you could still be questioned and they can still you know, hold you and make you wait. Um, additionally, Steph and I are married and happy now. I hope we will be married and happy forever. But if something were to happen, then where one of us dies and our families step in, or if, uh, I don't know, we became very different people and decided to go after each other, second parent adoption assures that the children are ours. Mm -hmm. And that's that. And it, it supersedes all state documentation. So we could go to any state in the country and at a federal level, we are recognized as, as the, parents the parents of our children. That's huge. What is, is that, I'd imagine, a lengthy and difficult process to accomplish? It took us about six and a half months. Um, we are lucky because we had a wonderful judge. Okay. Um, and the judge waived the right, uh, waived our home study. So we didn't have to have a home study proving that we could be parents, uh, which would have been an additional cost to us. Um, and Wait, hold on. Uh, you talked earlier about needing a mental health certification in order to conceive a child, in order to be listed legally as their parents. You had normally would have to have a home study where they come into your home and what watch you cook for your kid, or they check to make sure your home is safe and that your children are happy and healthy and secure. And um, Ours was waived, so we did not have to do that. But depending on the judge you have, depending on how that request is made, it is possible that you would have to, to go through that process. And we were a little sick about what that process could look like because there's so much um, variability, I mm -hmm. think, by people. So what if you got somebody who didn't, who's didn't like queer people who was yeah. your home study person like what are they wait what are they weighing you on what do you so we were very very fearful the home study caused a lot of anxiety for us before our um our lawyer told us that we had had it waived um and the the moment we we had been talking with levi because the lawyer told us your kids are going to have to say that they're happy with you on the, the call they have to respond to the judge when the judge talks to them well levi is extremely shy very, very, very shy. And so we spent a month before the court date practicing with him and telling him that we were going to meet a new friend. The new friend was going to be asking us about our family. We wanted to show that we were a family. And so when asked if we were a family, we needed him to say yes. Um, and like, we were like made it kind of a game, like mm -hmm. who's your mom, you know, yeah. who's your baza? Who's your, you know, we would like tease him and joke with him and try to get him to feel good about saying, yes, you're my family. 
Um, and when we met with the judge, he asked, you know, he did ask Levi that, but he was, you know, very kind. He was a very kind man. And Levi responded pretty well and was shy and then went back. And afterwards, the judge looked at me and Steph via the computer. This is pandemic and we yeah, are in a virtual courtroom. Clarify, yeah. And he looked at us and he said, I'm so sorry that you've had to go through these hoops to affirm who you really are. And Steph and I, you know, we're not particularly like, Steph's not a crier. And we both like burst into tears because mm-hmm. I think we needed to hear that. You know, you you do so many hoops, you go through it, you spend so much money, you have to answer so many questions, you have to put together so much that you kind of, you lose the personhood in the details that you're putting together for any kind of legal certification. You, you just do. And when the judge said that, I think it brings back to what you said earlier, we felt very human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I can't imagine the, I mean, paperwork and legality doesn't define what a family is, but when you're so lost in it, uh, or, you know, you, you consistently have to take steps to revalidate that that is your family. I can imagine how having one person just say, you know, you shouldn't have to do this, especially from a judge how the person who's making the exactly decision. <laughs> how validating that is it's just like you can exhale and like oh like you're right yeah this is frankly bullshit but i you know that's so heartwarming to hear um i hope that's the case for anybody who out there listening pursuing second parent adoption i'm sure the experiences may vary um what uh what advice would you give to somebody who is either about to embark on second marriage adoption or um, is in the midst of it or, you know, somebody who might be in a similar position? How have you kept morale up trying to face wave after wave of legal changes and then Supreme Court changes and, you know, everything that threatens to invalidate the legal standing of your family? I feel relieved that we did it when we did it, given the way of the world right now. I feel so relieved that we don't have to spend money on that specific thing right now when we feel so scared. We do feel so scared about the Roe decision. You know, we're devastated for a lot of reasons. We're also, you know, sickened for reasons, you know, insert uh, adjectives here. Right. Um, But we're also really concerned because this we have four embryos in the bank and what happens to them they are fertilized do if we have an agreement with our donor what will happen a legal agreement with our donor about what will happen if we choose not to use those embryos what happens to them because they're to be unfrozen Mm. Are they going to have to go to somebody else? Are they, we can't, can we donate them to science? That was our initial donate to science and then, you know, unfreeze. Like what, what happens to them? And what is the implication for our family if we can't unfreeze them? And what's the implication for our family if, you know, we, you know, there's something that happens where we'd have to use them. What if, you know, like, what is it? What does it mean? And we received an email from our um, fertility center shortly after we the decision came out, and it was like, 
we're doing everything we can to stay on top of this. We'll keep you updated, uh, which we appreciated hearing. But I think that like, we're terrified about what Roe v. Wade means for our family. Second parent adoption means that we feel as safe as we can in this situation with our children as we are right now. For anybody who has embryos or is using IVF or, you know, has had to procreate or conceive in a way that's atypical, this is a huge question mark. And beyond that, what does it mean for, I, I, I just think the questions for our family are like huge. And then also, if we cross state lines, we are covered. If let's say my children get hurt in Missouri when we're visiting family, we are assured by our second parent adoption paperwork that we will always be the ones to make the medical decisions for our children. We will always be seen as the parents. That's excellent. We appreciate that. That feels good. But like, we can't move to another state. How are we going to move to another state where my partner is going to be attacked for being queer? Like, yeah. It just, it, there's so many things. I've, I've, uh, I love Chicago. I don't know that I'm a lifer here. You could judge me if you want. Um, my partner is a lifer. And where else can we go? Yeah. Where else are we going to go? Yeah. You know, if it's not, if, if we're not going to go further north, where, how can we? And I think that this, you know, the Roe v. Wade question for me brings up so many additional questions about safety, future, security, family. You know, and I think, I think when I looked at the the um, the documents that came out from from the Supreme Court justices, you know, I just I kept thinking to myself like, it's that dehumanization mm -hmm. when it's down to a a word on a paper, you yeah. lose the human aspect of I'm a really good parent to my kids. And my partner is a really good parent to our kids. And our kids are growing up in a space where we are giving them the possibility to be whoever they want to be. And they're both um, pretty stereotypical cis little boys right now. Um, but whoever they want to be, they get to be. And I think that the idea that because of who we love or how Steph, Steph's gender appears and is, that we would be worth less is mind-boggling to me that we wouldn't be able to care for our children with the same amount of like intentionality and love that mm -hmm. other parents is mind-boggling to me and i think like all of that comes down to our right to make the decision to have our children we made the decision to have our children when we did in the way in which we did after hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of conversation with the people who helped make it possible between ourselves with our families and our chosen families. And, and I, I can't imagine someone telling me. Yeah. You, I won't add on too much because you said that so beautifully. Um, and I, I truly don't think there's too much more to say on that front, but I, it truly didn't occur to me that, uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade and, you know, the possible ramifications for, you know, the loss of, of gay marriage, but it also affects um, queer families in the way of IVF and, like you said, embryos. And they're, they're, it, it truly impacts, you know, everybody across the board, not just uh, when it comes to, like, the possible dissolution of gay marriage. So <sighs> I had to have a heave a big sigh on that one because, yeah, there's – it's – 
it is truly mind-boggling and i like you said the the yeah the dehumanization i think is the big part because yeah i i'm 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 at a loss of words when i and i'm just stammering at this point so and i don't want to keep you too long so we'll we'll wrap things up um what what advice would you give to to people who either are part of a queer family and are worried uh, about what's to come, or uh, on the other side, people who may not be familiar with you know queer atypical families and don't understand how to uh, open the door wider or be more accepting. Um, it's kind of a two-pronged question. Uh, what advice, so I'll, I'll rephrase it better. What advice would you give to people who aren't familiar with queer families and want to be more accepting but just don't really know where to begin? And then additionally, what advice would you give to people who are part of a queer family that are worried with the overturning of Roe v. Wade? I have probably spent more time looking at Campbell lately and just like really looking at him Um because that grounds me in in reality, right? Like all of the all of the talking heads on the news and you know, all the reporters and their opinions and all of that and like yes, that's all very true, but ultimately like I've spent so much time just looking at my son and recognizing that you know, I knew going in that we are in a world that was not made for families like ours. And I promised him that I would do everything I could to take care of us then. And that has not changed at all. I feel like um, we, we know more of who we are now. My wife and I have been together for a decade at this point. Um, so if anything, I would say, I would tell people to anyone that's looking down the track and wondering if it's a light at the end of the tunnel or an oncoming train, look at the people around you and rely on them for support. Um, be honest about how you feel. Don't try to squash anything because you don't think you should have that feeling yet because we don't know anything. You know, yes, worrying is often referred to as praying for things you don't want, but you can prepare for the things you don't want if you think about them. So talk to an attorney, you know, talk to a couple, get someone that you have some good vibes with. If they're worth their salt, they might even have a payment plan if money is a problem for you. Um, but, you know, if you're in this situation, I would absolutely advise you to exercise any legal opportunities you can because that's truly the way to protect yourself. And if you're someone that doesn't have a lot of experience with queer families, um, change your language. Start calling the grown-ups of children their grown-ups instead of their parents. Um, start normalizing asking questions to get a better understanding. Um, and just expand your own thinking. So often when people say something is overwhelming, it's because they haven't grasped like the 
expansiveness. So rather than being overwhelmed and like put upon or stressed out by having to like change your language or change your understanding of what a family or a person looks like, look at it as this person just gave you a gift. You just got to expand your brain space and you just got so many new awesome brain wrinkles that are gonna, you know, make so many new connections and it's really great. It just, it feels like so often people get really bummed out trying to change the way they think because they're yeah. so used to thinking in a limited way. Yeah. And it's not, it's a gift. We get to expand things. I'm a language nerd. We get to change language. How yeah. cool is that? It's, yeah. it's just, it's great. My family is conservative and my dad is conservative. And my dad is also one of the greatest champions of my partner and I. And that, I mean, he's always, I always have known that he's loved me 100%. But how do you say to your family, say to people you love, you care for, I deserve what you deserve. My life is my own. Time, repeated conversations, grace for each other, allowing for mistakes. My dad was very, very bad with my partner's pronouns. When Steph first came out, he didn't get it. And he was like, you know, like uncomfortable by it. And uh, he's excellent with them now. It took like three years before he started using them. But we gave him time because this is kind of how Steph is as a person. We gave him time to get used to it. And then mm -hmm. we said, listen, we have a child. You need to use Steph's pronouns because don't misgender my partner in front of my child. Yeah. And my dad was like, that's a good point. And bang, bang, boom, it was done. Mm -hmm. And I know people don't have that same experience, but I think like I'm not, again, trying to change my dad overnight. I'm not trying to change people who disagree with me in one day. I know that when I make a conscious effort to be a part of someone's life, they make a conscious effort to be a part of mine. And I know from my friends and family that the folks who are deeply embedded into my life change me every day. And so there's no reason why if I trust someone and love them, I can't offer a shift of perspective that they won't listen to if it's done in a way that's framed with love and care. I am 100% confident I have changed tens of people, you know, at least yes. <laughs> tens of people's opinion yes. ab about, about queer people. And I think it's because when you meet people where they are and you see, you know, I don't, I don't think like my dad and his, I don't, you know, he's always believed that like gay people can buy whatever they want because he believes very much in capitalism. But like, um, you know, marriage was like, okay. Uh, and I think, you know, seeing when he saw that me and Steph were deeply committed and devoted to each other, it was a no brainer. And so I, I am definitely, I would consider myself an advocate. I would consider myself an activist in some ways. And I would say like, part of the way I do advocacy is saying, you know, if we all deserve to be at the table, then people who think differently than me deserve to be at the table too, so long as they're not causing me active harm mm -hmm. or the people around me active harm. And if they're willing to engage in a conversation, then what if we leave one step further? We'll be better off. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that's my like advice to people about, you know, folks being different. And then I think my advice to people who have children or are considering having children or want to protect themselves is do it. You need to, you can't mess around because ain't nobody messing around with us right now. And yeah. we just don't know. We just don't know what will be safe. Yeah. And we cannot risk that. Excellent point. Excellent point. It's four or two, so I won't keep you because I know you're busy. But oh wow, I, I yeah again, I'm just my I don't I I'm one of those people that I'll be in the shower tonight uh, and then be like, oh that was a great point. I should have brought, should have brought that because I'm I'm still just processing everything that both you and Daniel have said because yeah, that this is such a, a complex issue and there's so much to dive into and I'm sure so many stories on both of your parts about how you know society has you've had to react to society as a queer family and and yeah there's there's just so much so um i just wanted to give a massive thank you for giving me your time and um being so open about everything um truly i think this is one of my favorite episodes just because this this type of um emotional uh, honesty, I think, is is huge and super important because I think when it's thing black and white things like the Supreme Court and it's very, like we talked about, even with birth certificates, it's a very like legal, like it's very stark, very dehumanized conversation that we have to have these kind of injections of real emotion and personal stories to remind us that at the end of the day, these these policies do impact real people on a real human level and we can't lose sight of that. So I hope that this podcast kind of serves to accomplish that at least a little bit. So um, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you, Matt, for having me. Thank you.